0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.
1: Sunday, April 10th, 2022. I'm Jared Halpern. A public health restriction on migrants entering the U.S. is set to end.
0: Title 42 is not an immigration measure. It's a public health
2: measure. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. He had Trump's endorsement, but then he lost it in his bid to be the next Alabama senator. Still, Congressman Mo Brooks is confident ahead of his primary, despite the background and poll numbers of his top opponents.
3: But uh, Notably, he's not endorsed anybody else. That really is not helping Mike Durant. It's not helping uh, Katie Britt.
1: This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Public health restrictions on migrants trying to get into the U.S. will be lifted next month. The Biden administration is now preparing for a likely surge in new arrivals at the southern border when the Centers for Disease Control officially ends Title 42 on May 23rd.
0: Title 42 is not an immigration measure. It's a public health measure um, and one that Congress has given the CDC authority to make a decision about. And we respect that and think that's that's absolutely right. Um, this is why the President proposed an immigration bill on his first day in office and we would certainly welcome efforts of anybody to work with us on that.
1: White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki has fielded questions all week about the implementation of ending Title 42 and the tens of thousands of immigrants who could show up at the border on a daily basis.
0: We're taking steps to convey that this is not the time to come. Uh, individuals who come to the vo- border, this is what would happen. CBP and ICE would work together to ensure that anyone who enters the country without authorization is put into immigration proceedings. As As
1: quickly as possible. Republicans and some Democrats in Congress and across the country have criticized the move. A few states like Arizona are suing to keep Title 42 in place. That states Republican Attorney General Mark Burnovich telling Fox News. More Americans are going to die and more taxpayers are going to have to pay for, you know, everything from health care to education benefits, welfare benefits, as the system gets overwhelmed. Ali Nurani is president of the National Immigration Forum, an advocacy organization for immigration policies. He tells me lifting Title 42 in the current situation at the border reinforces the need for congressional action.
4: If we as a nation are saying that we are getting past COVID-19, Uh, it's time to lift Title 42 and actually have the Department of Homeland Security do their job in terms of securing the border.
1: That's easier said than done, though, isn't it? I mean, even the administration, DHS, has talked about the number of migrants who they now expect to come to the border once Title 42 is lifted. I mean, it it could double the numbers. Does that worry you, your organization, about uh, the the sort of treatment the the
4: logistics of all of this. Well, I think it's important to remember number one that apprehensions at the border, even under Title forty two, have been you know record numbers. So what that shows us is that the cartels have effectively monetized the migration of uh, people from Central America and beyond to come to the U.S. Mexico border. So we can leave Title forty two in place, and we'll still have large numbers of people coming to the border to ask for protection. So then the question is, what should the administration do moving forward? First of all, I think the asylum rule that they proposed and that will go into effect at the same time Title 42 is lifted is really, really important. Under this new asylum rule, asylum cases will be adjudicated on a much faster process by uh, citizenship and immigration service officers. Uh, So that will, in essence, kind of uh, expedite this process so that people are not going to be detained for long amounts of time, but also more importantly, that the cartels will get the message that uh, the administration is actually putting people through a legal process. um, And that, you know, at the end of the day, I don't anticipate a large number of folks are going to be eligible for asylum, but they will all be able to apply for asylum. So it's a long way of saying, Jared, I'm sorry, is that um, the administration needs to have the personnel, the infrastructure and the logistics in place to process these applications. And they are taking the steps necessary to do that.
1: A couple of things you said there that I'm curious about pulling the the thread a little more. Um, Are you suggesting that these cartels have taken advantage of the public health order?
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, right now, I mean, the cartels over the last two years have made billions and billions of dollars. Uh, They have been able to because. Under Title 42, there is no legal uh, penalty. There's no legal cost for uh, crossing the border. So if I'm in- if undocument- you were just turned around. Because you're just turned around, right? You're not put into detention or deportation proceedings. So what's happened is that upwards of 30% of those apprehended at the border or since Title 42 came into place- Are are people who've tried multiple times. So that means that the cartels are are charging people thousands and thousands of dollars and saying you can you can try this three or four times for this you know it's uh, three tries for the price of ten thousand dollars. And as a result, like I said, the cartels are they're making billions of dollars and along the and you know on a a parallel path they continue to smuggle drugs into the country because you know Title forty two also has required a huge amount of human resources to you know, handle this flow that the, the cartels have created.
1: Does, so let, let's sort of, you know, move uh, that, that process along. So obviously Title 42 allows migrants to claim asylum and you expect many of them will try to claim asylum, uh, which is a legal way of entering the country, but will be denied that claim. It, I know it's a very high bar that, that you have to meet to get an asylum claim. Correct. What would be the incentive then, or the disincentive then for these these immigrants, these migrants to not then turn to cartels who can try and and sneak them into the the border, across the border, you know, past detection, past border patrol?
4: Well, let's let's look at this in a different way. Um, Right now, as a country, we have a labor shortage of epic proportions. You know, in the state of Texas, you have restaurants that are, you know, shutting down or limiting hours because they don't have staff. Construction industry across the country is is you know, struggling to meet the need. So on one hand, we have a labor shortage. On the other hand, we have uh, workers who are coming with skills that can fit the needs of our restaurant sector, construction, et cetera. So ultimately the solution here to undermining the cartels, improving border security, and meeting our labor shortages is for Congress to work together to actually create legal immigration pathways so that people are not applying for asylum, which they probably aren't eligible for, But they're actually able to apply for a legal work visa. The American family wins, the American economy wins, and immigrants themselves are not put into incredibly dangerous situations.
1: But that's not the case right now. So right now it's an issue. It's a question. It's a choice between
4: asylum and trying to get in through a non-legal way. Right. Right. And and so what, what will happen then is that just like what's happening now, right? So title 42, yes, cartels are bringing individuals to a port of entry to ask for protection. Once that shifts, cartels will change their business model. They will change their pitch, their sales pitch, and they will try to move people through other, other parts of the border. The fact is that, you know, if we want a secure border, you actually have to create processes that people can go through as opposed to turning their lives over to the cartels. And, you know, Congress, quite frankly, has absolved themselves of any sort of real responsibility in terms of trying to address this problem. I mean, they're more than happy to throw a lot of good money after bad solutions um, that, again, are not have have failed to address this problem. What should a uh, you know, we've seen Congress. Try
1: and pass what we would call comprehensive, you know, immigration reform. Usually it's a mix of border enforcement with what you're talking about, sort of increased pathways to to legal legal status. What is uh, does a solution look like? Is that still sort of the, the right mixture?
4: Well, I think that the legislative market these these days can bear something that's a little bit more discreet. So earlier today, I saw a tweet from a reporter on the Hill that uh, had talked to Senator Mike Crapo, Republican from Idaho, who is working with Senator Mike Bennett, a Democrat from Colorado. They worked together, they're working together to finalize a Senate version of the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. And what that would do is three things. First of all, it would implement... uh, um, uh, uh, a reformed legal immigration visa program for the agricultural sector. It would serve everybody from a you know a strawberry grower to a dairyman. Number two, it would legalize the farm workforce that has been here for years. Um, and has quite frankly, most recently helped us recover from and respond to COVID-19. And number three, with those two measures in place, it would create a mandate e-verify for the agricultural sector. So you take something like the Farm Workforce Modernization Act And you pair that with, let's say, the border security measures that were introduced by Senators Cornyn and Sinema last year um, that combine a combination of resources, technology and processing. And you actually have a very strong framework for a bipartisan compromise. Those two things are, you know, they're on the table to be to be uh, negotiated and, and brought up for a vote. What is the role
1: that the U.S. needs to play in maybe stemming some of this migration at its source? I mean, people generally don't leave their home country unless they're desperate to leave their home country, right?
4: You're absolutely right. And and this is really, I think, the... What it requires is a long-term investment in shoring up not only the economies of, for example, Central America, but also the governments. Now, towards the, in the last couple of years of the Obama administration, you saw a number of measures fall into place in a place like Honduras. I wrote about this in my recent book, Crossing Borders, where in Honduras, there was a national purge of the police, the, 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 national police, um, over 6,000 police officers from the top to the bottom, uh, were fired from their jobs for corruption. You saw as that purge took, took place, you saw the homicide rate decrease in Honduras. You saw corruption starting to be weeded out across the government. That's a real quality of life improvement for your average Honduran under the Trump administration those programs lost the financial and the political backing of the United States government. And the homicide rate goes back up, corruption goes back up. And lo and behold, people in Honduras are faced with this perfectly natural decision of, okay, where can my children and my family have a better life? In Honduras, where corruption and violence are returning, or should I try to get to the United States? Unfortunately, the only way they can get to the United States right now is then to sell whatever they have left, in terms of property and pay a cartel. Let me finish
1: with this, um, because you mentioned the cartels and, and the work that they're profiting off of To. Get people basically to what start the asylum process, right? And then they get turned Correct. around and they they start the process over again. Um, I know that under the Trump administration they had, I guess we're calling it remain in Mexico. It's got a more technical name, I think, but uh, uh, migrant uh, the protection Biden,
4: protocols. Yeah, right.
1: the The Biden administration tried to put an into it. The courts have not allowed that to happen. I believe there are negotiations ongoing between the Biden administration, and the government of Mexico, on sort of how that works. Should that program continue? Is that a a, a reasonable way to to sort of deal with the numbers of people that are arriving every day at the southern border?
4: I mean, look, if I was uh, talking to you as representative of organized crime and cartels uh, along the Mexican side of the border, I would say that's a great program because what it does, what it's proven to do is push individuals back over to the, into the Mexican side of the border into very dangerous situations where they're kidnapped, held for ransom, uh, beaten, robbed, Uh, and worse. Um, So look, if I was representing a cartel, that's a fantastic program. Personally, I think we as a country, as the most powerful nation in the world, we can put in place the personnel at the border to process applications. We can put the facilities on the border so that People are detained and processed in a timely fashion. But third, um, you know, we have the technology in terms of ankle bracelets and otherwise so that if people are released, they can still be monitored. But it always comes back to ultimately, OK, the only way to solve this problem is to actually have an immigration system that meets the nation's needs. And, you know, we're just we just do not have that at this point. That's where you would argue Congress comes in.
1: Correct. Well, we'll leave it there. I know Congress um, has a lot on their plate when they come back from this (laughs) two-week recess, so we'll continue these conversations. Appreciate your explanation and helping add some context to uh, this debate that's been going on this week here in Washington.
4: Really, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want
1: you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at com.
2: Former President Trump is headed to Alabama in mid-June for his freedom tour, but that is happening after the primary election, which is scheduled for May 24th. So, until then, the Republican Senate candidates are waiting to see who he will endorse. Trump won Alabama by a 28-point margin, but even with his kingmaker status, the congressman he endorsed in the Alabama Senate race, Mo Brooks, saw his poll numbers drop even when he had the endorsement. But then... Trump pulled his support, apparently over some comments about the election and January 6th. Now, Katie Britt and Mike Durant are hopeful they will get the former president's blessing. Britt worked with retiring Senator Richard Shelby, whose seat is the one that's open.
0: The most important things in life are faith, family, and
2: freedom. Shelby has said he'll dump excess campaign money into Britt's efforts, and Mike Durant was one of the helicopter pilots shot down in Somalia in the early 90s, later depicted in the movie Black Hawk Down.
3: Joe Biden is a failure. He's embarrassing our country, and I'm going to stop him because the career politicians won't.
2: So will the House representative continue to watch his poll numbers decline? And what all happened between him and Trump? It's moving very well. I like our positioning. Mo Brooks is a congressman in Alabama and is running for the open Senate seat.
3: Uh, We've got huge contrast between myself and the other two principal candidates. And in time, as voters learn about those differences on various public policy issues, uh, we ought to prevail.
2: So you, you have the name recognition, but your opponents have, I guess, their own version of name recognition, right? Mike Durant was shot down in the Black Hawk Down incident. And Katie Britt uh, worked with or for retiring Senator Richard Shelby, who I guess right now is the bigger opponent in your mind. Or does that really depend on who the former president ends up endorsing?
3: It makes no difference uh, which one of the other two end up uh, being the principal foe. Uh, with Katie Britt, uh, we've got a huge contrast in philosophy of government. I've been a tax fighter my whole life. Katie Britt has supported more tax increases publicly in her lifetime than any other Republican in Alabama history. That is a huge, huge difference. And then with Mike Durant, you've got his principal support coming from the Lincoln Project, uh, they have publicly stated that they believe that Mike Durant will be like Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski. The Lincoln Project folks have committed $15 million to help encourage Mike Durant to run. Uh, they set up his campaign, and that's just not going to fly in Alabama.
2: Why don't you think it will fly based on the polling, or do you not sort of believe where the polling is right now? Because it looks like Durant is ahead and maybe um, fighting that for that first position with Ms. Britt.
3: The Alabama citizenry does not yet know the liberal tendencies of Mike Durant. They're just now being uh, made aware of his anti-Second Amendment uh, statements that he has made from time to time. In Alabama, our Republican primary voters are strongly for the Second Amendment. Mike Durant is not. And once these things become known to the public, the polling numbers, whatever they may be today, will change dramatically over
2: time. Well, you've been making some headlines lately, let's talk about them because it involves the pulling of the endorsement. Um, It seems based on some of the reporting, and I'm glad we get to speak with you personally, it seems based on some of the reporting that um, the former president pulled his endorsement because you had told him to move on from the 2020 election, the big lie, and and all of that stuff and, and focus on the future. Was that it? What happened there? Why do you think the president pulled his endorsement of you?
3: Well, I'm not a mind reader. You'd have to interview Donald Trump to get his view as to why he decided to pull his endorsement. But notably, he's not endorsed anybody else. That really is not helping Mike Durant. It's not helping uh, Katie Britt. And we have now a proven conservative, which is myself, uh, versus a Lincoln Project liberal like Mike Durant, versus a special interest group Mitch McConnell candidate like Katie Britt. So I would anticipate that given those options, President Trump will remain neutral throughout the remainder of this mm-hmm. race. But again, I can't speak for President Trump. He's going to do whatever he's going to do, and he will do it when he wants to do it. And he will say why he wants to do it when he does it. Uh, quite frankly, I'm very pleased to have the endorsements of conservatives around the country, uh, people like Thomas Massey, congressman out of Kentucky, uh, Rand Paul, senator out of Kentucky, Ted Cruz, senator out of Texas. And the list just goes on and on and on. So as we get closer to the election day, more and more voters are going to figure out that there's only one conservative in this race, and that's Mo Brooks.
2: After the former president pulled that endorsement, you publicly said that he'd continued to talk to you essentially about January 6th, overturning the election, even reinstating him. What were those conversations, I guess, like after January 6th?
3: Well, after January 6th, and let me emphasize, Donald Trump and I agree on one major thing. There was massive voter fraud and election theft activity in the November 2020 elections. And we both fought that fight uh, from November 3rd through January 6th. I led the effort in the House of Representatives and United States Congress to write an injustice. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, Congress decided uh, not to agree And January 6th was the last date on the United States Constitution and uh, the United States Code by which an aggrieved candidate, as uh, Donald Trump was in the 2020 elections, that's the last day in which you could seek uh, redress or justice. Unfortunately, the Democrats controlled the House, the Democrats controlled the Senate. And you add to that some rhino Republicans who voted for uh, Joe Biden on January 6th. And so Joe Biden was sworn in as president on January the 20th. Uh, that's that's the way it works out. Uh, you have your one bite at the apple. That one bite was on January 6th. There is no recourse beyond January 6th other than to keep it in your mind about what happened in 2020 in order to inspire us to work harder in order to receive honest and accurate election results in 2022 and 2024. And in the meantime, change the laws that allowed the Democrats to steal as many votes as they stole.
2: Why didn't you, like, mention the, the conversations you'd had with the former president after January 6th until he pulled the endorsement? Or or was the endorsement sort of tied up in that?
3: I did not feel it was appropriate, so I did it.
2: Why not? It, was, it the, was, it about the, was it about being endorsed, you know?
3: I'm sorry, I don't understand your question.
2: Well, was, was it about keeping the endorsement? Were you thinking, like, why am I going to talk about my conversations with the, the president after January 6th? Because he's endorsing me.
3: If I were to try to make it as succinct as I can, and there are always lots of factors that play into this, it was not an issue until the president uh, pulled his endorsement and people asked me why.
2: So you do think the endorsement poll was, like, did he ever explain, hey, I don't want to move on from the 2020 election and I don't want you to tell me to move on? Like, was that ever okay. a conversation I'm, I'm not
3: going to get into all the details and nuances of my conversations with the president of the United States. I have publicly said what I'm going to say in that regard. If you have other things you want to ask me about, particularly of a public policy nature, I'm more than happy to address them.
2: I do want to know about the January 6th committee because those are your co- some of those are your colleagues. Well, all of them, I guess, are technically your colleagues, and they they're are still. Those, but they are, are
3: members of Congress, yes.
2: And they're still investigating. Have they? And you spoke, as we know, um, at the rally before uh, what happened on January 6. Have they ever asked to speak with you? Have you spoken to them? Uh, no, and no. Would you ever talk to them if they wanted to?
3: Well, I'd feel much more comfortable if it was truly a bipartisan uh, committee that was designed to seek the truth about what happened on January 6th, but it's pretty clear that this is a one-sided witch hunt, and that makes it a little bit more difficult, particularly when the witch hunters want to do everything in secret rather than public. Uh, The witch hunt committee, if they're going to investigate January 6th, they should do so in public, where the public, particularly people in the news media, but also every other citizen in America can see the full and complete answers that witnesses give to the questions that are asked, thereby being much more educated about what in fact transpired. And I say that in this context, I have already given at least two sworn statements about what transpired, my uh, activities on and before January the 6th. I've also made other public statements about my activities on and before January 6th. And a Barack Obama appointed federal court judge has already ruled that there was zero evidence. Ah, uh, connecting me with anything that uh, affected or encouraged the attack on the United States Capitol on January 6.
2: Let's talk about um, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. I know that 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 is also part of your campaign is talking about finding a replacement um, should the I guess the Senate, you know, be run by Republicans in the fall. Um, why why don't you want uh, Senator McConnell to be the majority leader? If the if Republicans take the Senate, why isn't he conservative enough, especially given how he's handled judiciary issues and shepherding through so many judicial nominees?
3: Well, there are a number of factors that come into play. Uh, First and foremost is uh, Mitch McConnell has the worst favorable, unfavorable ratio of any elected official in Washington, D.C., at least any elected official of prominence. Mitch McConnell's unfavorables are typically 30 to 35 points worse than his favorables and all the polling that has been done, and Republicans can and should do better in finding a message carrier that the public is more likely to be willing to listen to and agree with. Uh, we have plenty of United States senators whose reputations with the general public is vastly superior to that of Mitch McConnell. Uh, it's unfortunate that Mitch McConnell's reputation has deteriorated as much as it has but his his reputation, by way of example, his favorable, unfavorable uh, differential is two, three times worse than Joe Biden's. That gives you an idea as to how bad it is. And so we need a better message carrier, a person that the people of America would be more likely to listen to as we Republican senators state why we're taking the public policy positions that we're taking.
2: Finally, Congressman, you noted that um, you do have a track record to look at. You are on the House Armed Services um, and, I guess, Science, Space and Tech Committee. Tell me a little bit about your work on House Armed Services because that committee has heard a lot in the past couple of weeks from our military brass, um, from, from really a lot of members of military leadership about the future of our activity on on the European continent um, in the face of, of Russia's war in Ukraine. Where are you on what our engagement, our involvement, our relationships and partnerships with NATO and and our other allies should look like moving forward in light of this war? Well, first,
3: I'm proud of my service on the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, That is very important to uh, my congressional district. We're the home base for Redstone Arsenal, uh, which has a number of different military commands. But more importantly, it is extremely critical for the security of the United States of America. And so my role in making sure that we, as much as possible, invest in the right weapon systems, invest in the right things that are necessary to recruit, the kind of soldiers that we want, uh, serving our military, uh, all of those things I'm very, very proud of.
2: Congressman Mo Brooks, thank you so much for your time.
3: My pleasure.
1: That will do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Congress is out of D.C. for the next two weeks, a traditional recess for Easter and Passover and for the Capitol Hill community, a break that could not come soon enough after a resurgence of COVID cases. We'll look at the administration's pandemic policies next week and what the summer may look like for Americans looking to travel or not, given gas prices and other inflation worries. And of course, we'll keep up our reporting on the war in Ukraine. One note about that coverage of the war. Our friend and colleague Benjamin Hall updated his condition this week. You'll recall his crew came under attack last month, killing longtime Fox News photographer Pierre Zakshevsky and producer Sasha Kuvishnova. Ben posted a photo of his own recovery, letting us know he's lost half a leg, a foot. He's lost vision in one eye and his hearing is pretty blown. But Ben says he feels pretty damn lucky to be here. We're lucky he's still here, too. As the images of devastation and horror, video of fleeing Ukrainians and burned-out buildings continue to emerge, remember how you are seeing those, why they're being documented. It is because of the brave efforts and dangerous conditions of journalists from around the world dedicated to writing the first draft of history. Until next week, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay in touch with those you care about. For our entire team here at Fox News Radio, thank you for listening.